I'm ready to eat. I know. I'm starving. Now Christine is single because she dropped poor Marvin. Oh, I've got a headache. Your feet are too cold. Why can't I do what I want? Because you're just seven years old. Hey, Jimmy tried to hit me. Keep your hands to yourself. Honey, I need you to get these books off the shelf. I don't have time to talk right now. Good, because I didn't need you anyhow. Why can't things just go my way? Everything fell apart today. This relationship is going nowhere. I'm walking out because I've had it up to here. I don't know why I get no respect. All the kids are gone. There's nobody left. I love you, dear. Want to go for a walk? What would they say if these walls could talk? Well, it's so good to be with you today. I want to give a uh, shout out to those of you who are worshiping with us right now online or those of you who are worshiping at our West Campus. You have joined us today as we begin a brand new series all about relationships, family, marriage, sex, dating, and uh, everything in between. We're really excited about this series, okay? And, and so if this is your first time or maybe first time back in a long time, we are really glad uh, that you are here. We believe that this series has the potential to change not only you, but uh, generations of your family to come. Now, you need to know that throughout this series for the next few weeks, we are going to be using this metaphor of a house to kind of describe the different relationships in our life, to describe the, the relational dynamics between the people who are closest to us and, and most important, okay? And as we look at the house, okay, and, and we examine our own lives, all right, we're, we're going we're gonna to ask ourselves time and time again, what, what do I need to own? What, what, what is it that I am doing that is maybe contributing to the problem? Okay, so I just want to begin by throwing this question out there. If the walls could talk in your home, what would they say about you? I mean, what, what would it say about the way you maybe treat your wife, the way that you parent, the way that you are dating? I mean, what, what would the walls in your home say about you? Now, despite our efforts to maybe manicure our front yard really well or put on uh, a really great curb appeal to people who pass by, at the end of the day, if the walls could talk in all of our homes, it would probably communicate a very different impression because none of us have perfect homes, right? I mean, that, that's just true. And so today we're going to begin by looking at the foundation of the home, okay, because everything is built on top of the foundation. If we miss the foundation, if we don't get this right, then nothing else really matters because God designed the family in such a way that, that really everything flows from the foundation. Now, you and I both know that a physical structure is only as good as its foundation, right? I mean, it, it doesn't matter how, how many textures you have in your living room. It doesn't matter how great your man cave is. It doesn't matter how proud Chip and Joe would be at the amount of shiplap you used in your pantry, okay? At the end of the day, if your foundation is crumbling and you're, you're, you, you've got a house that is just sinking, none of that really matters, right? And so this is the most important, this is the most important part of the house, and so we're going to uh, pick up by looking at the very first uh, wedding uh, recorded in all of time. If you have your Bibles or Bible app, I want you to go ahead and turn uh, to the book of Genesis. It's the very first book in the Bible. If you don't own a Bible, there should be a black one right in front of you or in the seat below you. Okay, we're going to pick up in Genesis chapter 2. And uh, this is, again, the very first wedding recorded in all of time. And, and what we are going to do today is we are going to look at how God clearly lays out the foundation of the home by bringing together a, a man and a woman, a husband and wife, as they establish what's called a covenant, okay? And so the covenant from the beginning of time is the foundation of marriage. What's a covenant? 
Well, you see, in the ancient world, this was a really big deal. It was the uniting of two different parties. It was the bond or maybe a formal agreement between two different tribes or families. And, and it was a really serious thing, okay? And so when you entered into a covenant, you really didn't have any time, any energy to focus on how maybe the other party or the other person wasn't meeting your needs. No, because if you weren't meeting your standard of the covenant, then in some cultures, it was punishable by death. And so therefore you were so almost obsessed and focused on meeting the other person and serving his or her needs that you didn't have time to really think about how, how all your needs and wants and desires are just, are just being uh, overlooked. Now, this is very uh, backwards for a lot of us because so many of our relationships in our society are based upon contracts, right? I mean, I, I will be in this relationship with you if you meet these standards. All right, let me give you a little example here. My wife and I recently changed internet companies, okay, and here's why. The previous company that we were using, our service in our home was just horrible, okay? Our Wi-Fi was sporadic, depending upon the room that you were in. That may not sound like that big of a deal to you, but I gotta tell you, hell hath no fury than a wife who wakes you up in the middle of the night freaking out because the live stream of the royal wedding just got cut out. <laughs> yeah, you feel my pain, if you know what I'm talking about, okay? so. That company wasn't meeting our terms, so we exited that relationship at no cost, went with a new uh, company, okay? But a covenant's completely different. A covenant says, no, you stick with it. You hang in there even if the internet is, is poor. Now again, this, this challenges us because we're wired completely differently. We, we want our needs and our happiness to be met and and yet it's only a matter of time until the person that we're married to is gonna fail us. It's only a matter of time until we see their flaws and their brokenness. And so that's why we see that, that God says the foundation of the home has to be this, this idea of, of a covenant where it's not about their performance. It's not about what they're not doing. It's no, you focusing on how you can make their life, their life better. Now, there's nothing really that can prepare us for this if you've never been married before. I mean, dating kind of, Dating kind of is, is an attempt at it. When we date, we learn different relational dynamics and maybe good practices. We learn about ourselves as we date, but it doesn't really prepare you for marriage all that well. Why is that? Uh, I like what uh, author Tommy Nelson said. He said, dating is marketing, right? <laughs> Courtship is the close. Anybody, if you've ever been on a first date and you, you just felt the need to say to the person you're going out with, hey, I just, I just want you to know that I am obsessed with my self-image. Anybody ever say, hey, I, you know what? I'm really proud. I snore in the middle of the night. Right? I've got terrible morning breath. Anybody? No. We put our best foot forward when we date, right? And then when we get married, it's only a matter of time until those masks come off and we see who that person really is. And so whether you're single, whether you're divorced, or maybe considering marriage in the future, as we talk through this first wedding, this first marriage, there are going to be some applications and principles that, that all of us can take away no matter your relationship status in life. Let's pick up in chapter 2, verse 18. Okay, here, here's what we read. The Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Let's stop right here for, for just a second, okay? From the beginning, we see that loneliness is not a good thing. 
Right, being by yourself, it's not what God says is best. We were designed to live in community with one another. Why is that? Well, following Jesus, you can't really do it unless you are knowing other people and you are pursuing other people. And at the same time, you are also being known by other people. That's why small groups are such a big deal here at Crossroads. And so the Lord looked down at Adam, the very first man. He was lonely in the garden and he determined to make him a helper. Okay, we read right here. And understand that a helper, it has nothing to do with status and it has everything to do with service. God knew what the first man needed most and that was a support, that was a helper. And so the very first statement, okay, as we walk through this, we're gonna identify statements that we make when we enter into this covenant, this foundation. The first statement we make when we enter into the covenant of marriage goes like this, I will be your friend. All right, I, I, I will be your friend, that, that's what I'm promising you. Some scholars uh, talk about the significance of, of the woman being made from the side of the man. This symbolized their equal worth, but it also gives us a picture of our need for friendship in, in marriage, right? Now, men and women, we're, we're very similar in a lot of ways. We've both been made in the image of God, but we also have differences as well. And so what we tend to do is we try to blend it all together and say, no, we, we're, really, we're really all the same. But yes, we're, we have equal worth and equal value, but we're, at the end of the day, wired a little bit differently. I'm going to illustrate this by uh, looking at different objects that naturally we associate a gender with them, okay? And so we assign certain objects with it either being male or female. I'm going to pull a couple of these objects out of this box, and I, I need your help with this. I need your response. And when I hold the object up, I'll say what it is. I want you to tell me if you think that it belongs in the male category or if it more aligns itself with being in the female category, okay? First one's kind of easy. I think, I think we, should all, we should all get it for the most part, okay? This is a hammer. Is this, is this male or female? Just, just blurt it out. Male. Very good. That, that's exactly right. A hammer hasn't changed much over a few thousand years. There's nothing all that special about it. There's nothing all that exciting about it, but it's useful to have around the house, right? So it's male, okay? Ziploc bags, male or female? Female, female. think again. Okay, th th this one's a little bit tricky. Ziploc bags are actually male, do you know why? Because they hold everything inside and you can see right through them. <laughs> Car tire, male or female? Male. Very good. Male, why? Because they're balding and they're often overinflated. <laughs> all right, all right. How about this? A copy machine? Anybody? Copy, female or, or male? Copy machine? Female. female. Very good. Female. Why is that? Well, when it's turned off, it's hard to turn them back on. It takes a long time. They're really good at reproduction only if you know the right buttons to push. I'll stop there. I'll, I could keep going. From the beginning, God designed men and women differently. Now, we live in a culture and a society that is very in tune with political correctness, and so what we want to do is kind of blend everything together and talk about how we're really all the same, but 
But when we do that and we shy away and we avoid our, our differences, we really compromise the foundation of the home. And so the, the basis of every good marriage isn't about uh, avoiding our differences as men and women, but it's actually embracing our differences. Earlier in Genesis chapter one, when God is creating the earth, you know, left and right, creating the animals and the, and the, and the ocean and the sky, he creates mankind. Take a look at what we read in chapter one, verse 27. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female, he, he created them. This is really important. Right, we live in a culture and a society today that says gender is, is really your choice. Now, I can't fathom, hear me out on this, I can't fathom all the complexities that go into some of the confusion and then trigger this level of maybe gender dysphoria that, that has been thrown around. Is this something that, that I can pick? And, and if that's where you're at today and you're confused about who you are, I want you to know very loud and clear that God has made you just how you are for a reason and for a purpose and it's nothing but a lie to believe that some kind of gender reassignment will complete you as a person. And so hear me on this. Jesus is not in love with a better version of you. He loves you just, just the way that you are. And confusion does not come from God. The Bible makes that very clear. He's a God of clarity. A guy by the name of Paul said it like this when writing to one of his churches in the city of Corinth. He said, for God is not a God of confusion, but a God of, of peace for He's a God of, of wholeness. He's a God of, of harmony, right? The creator God has intentionally molded and crafted every person to be either a man or a woman. Now, our fascination to determine gender is really an attempt to reject what God has said is, is right and true from the beginning because we want to pursue what feels right, where our emotions might be, and it gets really subjective and relative at that point. But you see, the foundation of the family, again, isn't built upon ignoring our distinct roles as genders, but, but it's about embracing it. Now, understand, people are not the enemy here when it comes to this. If anything, gender reassignment reveals our innate uh, desire and never-ending hunger to be our own God, right? Here's the thing. Clarity by nature is polarizing. And so when we find ourselves resisting or redefining God's boundaries, his commands, his promises, it ultimately for us comes down to trust. Right? Through God's clarity, we actually see intentionality. And where there is intentionality, we also see his love. Now, according to our text, the foundation of the family all right, the foundation of the family within the bounds of a covenant between a husband and wife can be illustrated like this. It's, a, it's about a one man and one woman entering into this relationship as one. And it's within these parameters, it's within these boundaries that God says, hey, this is where true joy can happen. This is where flourishment, that if you really wanna experience what I think is best for you, this is where it happens, okay? And so th this is clarity, but it's also polarizing because this means that there are some things inside this box that that just don't belong there. And this also means that any kind of sexual expression outside of this box falls short of God's best, it falls short of his glory. It's, it's sin, okay? And it's only a matter of time until that will lead to a lot of heartache. But God says, hey, inside this box, this is where the friendship is meant to be cultivated. This is where the two of you are, are to, to bond with, with one another. And is it any... Is it any irony that the very first friendship we read about in the Bible happens to be between a husband and a wife? Our friendship and marriage is not only possible, but, but it's, actually, it's actually essential. 
All right, so the challenge with a lot of this is finding out what your spouse needs you as a, as a friend, because chances are what he or she needs you as a friend to do or to be is different than what you might need. Wives, you can build friendship with your husbands by uh, experiencing shared activities with your husband. This will speak to him. All right, for example, I love it when Savannah joins me out in the garage after the kids have been put in the bed and I'm washing my car. We're just talking. That's something I love to do. And yet we're deepening our friendship, okay? I love it when we go to the gun range and, and we practice target shooting quite a turn on, to tell you the truth. I mean, it's, it's kind of awesome. That's what we like to do on dates. Now, the kind of friend that Savannah needs me to be is a, is a little bit different, all right? My wife says that I have two major issues. Number one, I don't listen all that well, and I can't really remember the second thing. She needs me to listen. She needs me to be vulnerable. She needs me to open up. She needs to know that she is priority, that she is the most important person in my life. And that means putting down the phone. That means putting aside the computer. Author John uh, Gottman says it like this. Happy marriages are based on a deep friendship. They are well-versed in each other's likes, dislikes, personality, quirks, hopes, and dreams. And so whether you're married or not, what kind of friend are you? Are you the kind of friend that that you want in someone else? What, what, would, your, what would your roommate, what, what would your coworker, what would someone who, who's maybe really close to you say about the kind of friend, friend you are? Let's keep going in our text and skip down to uh, verse 21. Take a look here. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep and while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and then closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man. And he brought her to the man. The man said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. That is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and the two become one flesh. This is really important here, okay? Because this is the essence of what the covenant is all about. It's about unity. It's about oneness. Therefore, the second declaration we make when we enter into this covenant goes like this. We say to our spouse, we are now one. We are now one. We are now united. We are one unit, Okay? Marriage, whether you know it or not, is really an imperfect picture of a perfect God. What do I mean by that? Well, the Hebrew word to describe that, that one flesh or the coming together of the husband and wife it goes back to this Hebrew word, akkad, and it means unity. It's really a powerful word that describes the, the, uh, the oneness that takes place between uh, two or more parties coming together in a formal agreement. Now, it just so happens that of out of all the words in the, the ancient Hebrew language that God could have used to describe marriage, he chose this one. And yet another time that we see this word described in the first half of the Bible, this word is used to actually help people understand the identity of God. Now this word wasn't used all that often and, and yet there was a time when God's people were a little bit confused and, and they had given themselves to, uh, uh, to idolatry. They were worshiping many gods and, and so a, a, a guy by the name of Moses was leading the Jewish people at this point in time and, and so they were approaching Moses by saying, well, well who, who, who is God? I mean, remind us of, of what he's all about. And, and so Moses stood up in front of the people one day and in Deuteronomy chapter six, here's what we read Moses said. He said, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the, the Lord is one. 
Now, that may not sound that significant to you, but you see, this was the moment when Moses clarified the sovereignty and the holiness of our creator God. And so this was a little bit polarizing because this was a polytheistic culture and many people were walking around confused and anxious about who the true God was because they had given themselves to so many other gods. And yet Moses stood up and said, no, the Lord God is one. And so in this moment, the word akkad is used to describe and help us understand the unity that takes takes place between God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit, a cod. Yet, we also know that this is foreshadowing of one day when God would establish a covenant with his people, us as the church, out of a desire to be one, a cod, with us as well. Now, just because you are one with your spouse doesn't mean that you lack distinction, doesn't mean that you don't have, you know, your, your own personalities, Okay. Now, this can be a little bit confusing for us, but God gave us the picture of a husband and wife of being one to help us understand him more fully. Your personality doesn't change once you get married. You're still the same person. In fact, marriages that lack, marriages that lack sincerity is when one spouse is always trying to change the other. But at the end of the day, as, as, as a married couple, you're one, you're unified. You share the same last name. There's harmony about what matters most. You, you, you share a home, you sleep in the same bed, you're open with, the, with each other about finances and, and purchases. Marriage is also about adopting the other person's family into yours. We all know this can be a little bit confusing. This can lead to a lot of tension in marriage. In-laws, right, when you factor that into the equation, this past Thursday, I uh, called up my mother-in-law and uh, I had to ask her a question. When I, when I called her up, she picked up. I was a little bit surprised because uh, she, she was crying. I could tell that she was crying and it was kind of a little bit awkward. And uh, she said, oh, Patrick, you know, I'm, uh, not, nothing's going on. I'm just sitting on our couch in the living room watching the wedding video between you and Savannah 10 years ago this month. And uh, I was like, oh, great. Well, don't you have anything better to do, you know? And uh, Trying to lighten the moment, I said, oh, I know, why, I know why you're crying. Those are tears of joy because you just still can't believe that I am your son-in-law, right, you know? <laughs> she said, no, that, that's actually not it at all. I'm, these tears are because I'm realizing all over again how Savannah could have done so much better. <laughs> Difference between in-laws and outlaws, outlaws are wanted, <laughs> right? Kidding, okay? Now, living out of unity is really difficult, though. All right, this is where tension can happen. But the foundation of your home will only be as solid as you and your spouse work towards oneness on a day-to-day basis. The biggest threat, though, to oneness in the home is your sin and selfishness. If you're single and, and you hate forgiving people and you're always trying to avoid conflict and, and you just rather not go through the difficult work of what relationships require when it comes to reconciliation, then let me just tell you very clearly right now, you will be miserable in marriage. Because deciding to get married is really a decision to forgive over and over and over again. I read this past week uh, about a well-known professor who has spent most of his life studying couples and all the different dynamics that go into uh, what it takes to have a flourishing marriage between a husband and wife. And, And after extensive research over several decades, he concluded that there are four negative behaviors that most often and frequently predict divorce between a husband and wife. And, And they are as follows. He said, criticism over, a part, uh, over the other partner's personality, contempt. In other words, when one spouse is looking down upon the other from a position of, of superiority. Thirdly, defensiveness and stonewalling or emotionally withdrawing due to overwhelmed, being overwhelmed by criticism from the other person. Does that describe, does that describe any of your marriages? 
Again, if the walls could talk in your home, what, what would your walls say about you? What would your walls say about how you're doing with this whole covenant thing? And some of you listening right now, I know, believe that your spouse is the problem, right? And you probably got a pretty good leg to stand on. I mean, there's probably some truth to it. He messed up. She, she did that. And, and you've got your justification. And you know what? If you've got enough people around you to justify why, why you should just give up and throw in the towel, you probably have a right to do that. But you know what? Being a part of a covenant calls you to actually take ownership of how you've contributed to the problem because at the end of the day, you aren't responsible for, for how, your, how your spouse reacts, how your spouse lives on a day-to-day basis. All right, we demonize what we idolize. Why is that? Well, because we're frustrated that someone else can't satisfy us the way that we think that they should. But what if, what if he or she isn't in your life to meet your every need? And what if when you demonize your spouse because they aren't meeting that need, they aren't meeting that one, it really reveals that you are looking for that need and that one to be met in an area that only Jesus can fulfill. This leads me to the last thing that we say when we enter into a covenant. It goes like this. You say to your spouse, you won't meet my expectations. How romantic, right? (laughs) You won't meet my expectations. Now, this is just my opinion, but I'm right. Unrealistic expectations destroy more homes than almost anything else. You see, an argument about money, an argument about sex, in-laws, frustrations, long work hours, affairs, porn addictions, obsession with romance novels, and whatever else you wanna throw in there is really symptomatic of brokenness and sin and failed expectations that have happened between you and your spouse, right? All right, imagine it like this. You were working long and hard all day long out in the yard on a 90 degree day. You come in, you haven't had a, a sip of water. You are desperate for some water. You're thirsty. And so you walk into the kitchen, you see a, a glass of water sitting there on the countertop. You take a sip only to spit it out and run over to the sink because what you thought was water, what you thought was gonna quench your thirst ended up being vinegar, okay? And that vinegar, it only made you thirstier than before, although it had the appearance of water. Water, right? Now we need to understand that God has given us, he has given us gifts. He has given us different things to enjoy. He has actually given all of us desires and the desires that all of us have in itself are good and pure and holy. But where we tend to mess things up and where brokenness and sin and where they get us off course and they destroy foundations and they destroy homes left and right is when we take those desires and we pursue them in a way that dishonors God and we pursue them in a way that God says, no, that's actually outside of what what is right and true and best for you that's only going to lead to destruction when we take those desires and we think you know what I know best I am the one who deserves to be happy here I am the one whom this is all about and and it has the appearance of being right it has the appearance of maybe being water and and yet when we take a sip it only makes us thirstier it only makes us want more it only makes us want what what's newer what's shinier what's bigger what what's better right And so often we run after good gifts that the Lord has given us outside the parameters of how he designed them to be, how he designed them to be pursued. And you know what? It may have the, it may have the appearance of truth and authenticity, but uncontrolled desires, it only makes us thirstier. And that was this couple's story. Because Genesis chapter two describes this really romantic wedding. But then Genesis chapter three 
things get off course rather quickly. Adam and Eve, they had this moment where, where they started down this trail of allowing their desires for something good to, to all of a sudden take over and, and control them. The grass was greener on the other side because they thought that the lawn before them was brown. You see, sin happens in our life when we give in to our desire for what's more, for what's better, bigger, and newer, rather than being content with what God has given us and being content and realizing that Jesus really is enough. And so in Genesis chapter three, we see that Adam, he gave up his responsibility to lead and to protect his bride, which left Eve really vulnerable. All right, that's a toxic combination, by the way. And so the next thing we know is that they ran from God, they, they avoided him, they said, thanks, but no thanks. And they ended up in this place of feeling shame and they started running from God rather than running towards him. Now, here's the thing, let's bring this home. The reason we struggle in our relationships is because we're sinners and we live in a broken world. Paul said it like this in Romans chapter eight. He said, we know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. This describes why you're seeing a marriage counselor. This describes why you have control issues. This describes why you're trying to control your spouse. It's the groaning, it's the pain. Why? Because we desperately want control. We want God's position. We, we try to be God ourselves. And so this, this groaning and the pain only gets worse when we try to remedy it with a false imitation, when we think we're drinking water, but really it happens to be vinegar. And, and here's the deal. Nobody lies to you more than you do. It's true. I mean, after all, you, you thought that once you were married, you, you'd finally be happy, you'd finally be fulfilled. All right, you're, you're headed towards divorce maybe right now because you say, you know, this, this just isn't the person I married. He, he's changed, she's different. You think that you've just fallen out of love, whatever that means, all right? You, you, you want variety now, you, you're bored with what you have because she just doesn't make you that excited all that more. And all those things seem good and true. It seems like good advice that, that you hear day in and day out from society. And we're told actually that these are the rules for fulfillment. These are the rules for dating, sex, and marriage. But let me ask you this. If you knew then that the path you were taking would eventually fail you, maybe some of us wouldn't be so surprised to find ourselves in a place that you've tried to avoid your entire life, right? Take it from one of Israel's kings named Solomon. He says this. He says, the house of the wicked will be destroyed, but the tent of the godly will flourish Listen here, there is a path before each person that seems right. It looks like water, but it's vinegar. It ends in death. Do you see how Solomon right here parallels a fallen house to a path that appears to, it appears to be good advice, right? So what, what does this look like for you? You know, one of the worst things that could happen to you is for you to see no problem with the foundation that you've been building your home upon because it's worked out for you so far. Right, there's no emergency. If it's not broken, then don't fix it. But you know what? It's only a matter of time until a storm will happen. A storm will occur. Things will unravel. Your life will fall apart because you are building on something else besides Jesus. That storm, it may not happen today. It may not happen this week. It may not happen this month or even the next couple years. But I promise you, a time is coming when a storm will happen, something will trigger, and you will look back and realize, I, 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 th I thought the foundation was sturdy, but, but it, was it was really sand. Now, let's get real here for a second, okay? Whenever I marry couples, I always say this before I walk them through the vows. I say, look, you're about to promise something to each other that 
The time is ticking down until you fail to live up to this promise. Nobody in the history of humanity has ever perfectly kept any promise, even though you're about to promise this to one another. That's why, that's why you need plenty of grace and forgiveness for this relationship to work. That's why, apart from Jesus being the foundation of this marriage, things just aren't gonna work because my story goes like this, and I think you could identify with this, okay? Even when Jesus had every right to give up on me, even when Jesus had every right to reject me, toss me aside, never once has he served me with divorce papers. He's never given up on me, even when I've given him reason to. I love my wife, Savannah. We have a great relationship. There are days I still can't believe that I get to be married to her. You've heard me say it before, but you know what? If she ever leaves me, I'm going with her. (laughs) This may be really surprising to you, but apparently I'm not the easiest person to live with either. I try to be a good husband, but I gotta tell you, I'm not setting many records or making many headlines. This may be really shocking to you, but on occasion, I've been known to cross the line and have that whole, you don't know when to stop speech that I have with my kids that I really can't live out myself, all right? And if there's anyone who knows my weaknesses and mistakes, it's her. There have to be weekends where she listens to me preach. She shows up at church uh, and she hears me talk about something where she just has to be sitting there thinking, what a hypocrite. That's not what you were saying. That's not what you were doing last night. And you know what? Like every couple, we go through seasons where we're in step with one another. Things are going well, but then we have those weeks where we just can't seem to get along. We can't even agree on the color of mulch. <laughs> yes, that was a fight we had this week, all right? And, and Monday this past week was one of those days where we just weren't clicking. And, and that Tuesday morning, I woke up. I was just frustrated. We'd gone to bed. We'd forgiven each other, talked some things out. But I woke up just frustrated because because I realized that I was trying to change her. I was trying to, I was trying to be over controlling of her. And I felt like she was trying to do that to me as well. And yet what's really ironic is, is I can talk, I can teach, I can preach about how as a couple, you can't control the other person. And you know what? It's really easy to stand up here and say that, but it's really difficult to actually live that out myself. And, and so I kind of had this aha moment as I woke up on Tuesday morning where I realized that, you know what? I, I've got to own some stuff. I, I, I can't control her. I can't, I really don't have any kind of uh, responsibility at the end of the day for that. But what I do have responsibility for is how I'm treating her, how I'm serving her. And so I've got to take ownership of that. And you know what? As the leader of the home, I have to run towards responsibility, not away from responsibility, like what our first father, Adam, did in the Garden of Eden. Leaders go first. And so what I did was I sat down when I got to my office later that day and, and, I, and I broke out a, a journal. I don't do this very often, but, but I just wrote out, I just wrote out what, what I needed to confess, what I needed to, get off, what I needed to get off my chest. And I wanna share with you real briefly what I wrote out on Tuesday morning. I said, how can I repent of my pride and follow Jesus in my marriage if I keep my pride in the dark? Healing and deliverance never happens in the dark. It can only happen in the light. And sometimes, God, the thing that keeps me most from freedom is being very general about my sin. And so let me be specific. My pride is revealed when I don't pray, when I think, God, you owe me something, when I think I deserve something because uh, I think Savannah deserves to treat me a certain way. My pride is revealed when I run from conflict, when I refuse to take responsibility, when I blame others, when I point the finger. My pride's revealed when I spend a lot of time and come up with really creative ways to get more money for something that I want, when I try to flatter Savannah just because I know what it'll lead to because it's something that I maybe need in that moment. I compare myself to others. I feel better about me when talking up someone else's sins. My pride's revealed when I withdraw, when I don't care, when I shut down because my feelings were hurt. 
I didn't share about half of what I wrote because it gets worse. (laughs) But let me tell you something. Marriage has a way of revealing your need for grace. And one thing that my wife and I have been committed to is that Jesus is gonna remain the foundation of our home. And what's surprising to me is when we surface our sin time and time again, our sin, when it's revealed, it makes us do one of two things when it comes to Jesus. We either run from Jesus out of shame or we actually run towards Jesus because we recognize our need for him and dependence upon him for his grace. And so a marriage that is built upon Jesus goes back to this continual commitment to make him the cornerstone of our family. It's why the apostle Paul, when writing to a church in the city of Ephesus about 2000 years ago, said this, hey, look, together we are his house, God's house built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. And and the cornerstone, the most important piece is Christ Jesus himself. We are carefully joined together in him, becoming a holy temple for the Lord. Now the ancient world Architects would tell you that that the cornerstone, the most important part of the foundation, which is the most important part of the home, because the cornerstone would literally hold all things together, okay? Jesus has held our marriage together, and he's gonna continue to. We're we're gonna stop right there, but, but there's some of us right now in this moment, you need to make Jesus your cornerstone. You need to make Jesus the foundation that you commit to building upon, and I don't know what this looks like for you, But when we pick up things next week, okay, I I want you to have completed something with your spouse, okay? If you're not married, I want you you to do this with a roommate. I want you to do this with your best friend, okay? Because a covenant, if you think about it, is all about focusing on the other person rather than focusing on how your needs aren't being met. So here's what I want you to do. I want you to sit your spouse down, your best friend, whatever this looks like for you, and I want you to ask this question. What's it like to live on the other side of me? And just listen, don't get defensive. Maybe as a husband and wife, maybe you ask, hey, how, how am I making it more difficult for you to be in this relationship with me? What, what am I doing? Help, help me understand. And I promise you, some things are gonna be exposed that, that might not be comfortable and you'll do one of two things. You'll either run towards Jesus or you run away. Run towards Jesus. Because I think you'll be surprised at, at what he tells you. Let's pray. God, none of us are living this out perfectly. We, we all need plenty of grace and forgiveness each and every day just, for some of us just, just to get up out of bed, for some of us just to have a, that conversation. And, and God, it's really easy to talk about how, Jesus, you need to be the cornerstone of our, of our homes, but sometimes this is really difficult because it calls us to repentance. It, it calls us to, to surface our sin where we've gone wrong, where we thought, hey, it, we, I thought this was a good path. I thought this was good advice, but... Come to find out, it's just led to a bigger storm. It's led to death, it's led to separation. And so Jesus, would you you show each of us this week what it's like to live on the other side of us? Would you keep us from being defensive? Would you keep us from, from making excuses? And would you actually help us to run towards responsibility, seeing that we won't ever have to forgive our spouse for anything more than you've already forgiven us of? We thank you for the cross, that's our motivation. It's in your name we pray, amen.